Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. This is about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And thank you for being with us. This is Our Common Ground. Good to have you with us tonight, the last day of October 2015. And they tell me by the sound of my doorbell that it is Halloween. And we welcome you to our common ground and and thank you so very much for your support of this broadcast transforming truth to power one broadcast at a time liberating learning and leading people who know and when they know will do better. I'm Janice Graham your host and um it is a very chilly, chilly Halloween evening uh, in Boston. Before we get started tonight, I'm just really, uh, you know, it's one of those things. You know how you think things can't get any worse. You're, you know, you know how you, you get to that point 
Well, here we are this week, and it did really get to that place. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're asking the question, just where do our children find, hold on to their dignity, and where are they safe? Unless you were hiding under a rock, For the last four days, you know that a young teenage girl at Spring Valley High School in Columbia, South Carolina, was brutalized by a police officer assigned to her school. We have a lot of questions that we need to be asking uh, over the next Well, actually, we have been asking these questions. Very few of us have taken the question beyond the asking. And I think that we have got to come to a place where activists, people who know, who know better, who understand the issues of social, political justice, has got to come to a place where we make those things real. We have got, you know, we've spent weeks over the last couple of months talking about the issue of our own empowerment, talking about the issues of our own distress, our need to organize, our need to turn to each other and examine. I have been examining. I am so exasperated by all of this, and I'll tell you why. It might be my age. It might be time for me to hang up my microphone. It may be a, uh, it may be time for a lot of things, but I know one of the things that it is not time for, it is not time to turn away from the truth. In 1986, I invited Dr. Nathan Hare and Dr. Julia Hare to Palm Beach County, where I was broadcasting on a community radio um, station to do a countywide confab on the issue of discipline in public schools for black children, disproportionate discipline, the push-out effect. This was, listen to me, 1986. So tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to continue about accountability on every front, multidimensional, to ask the question, where are our children safe? Do we understand what happened in Columbia, South Carolina, do we understand what happened in a public school paid for by the taxpayers where there was a police presence, obviously a brutal police presence, where black children feared And they cowered. 
listen to me, black children feared and they cowered. And it is not just happening in Columbia, South Carolina. It is happening everywhere. And, of course, we don't want to start the broadcast tonight without mentioning a couple of things. And I want you to stay with me because our guest tonight is one of the top advocates and experts in the organizing and ignition of the issues of parents and children in schools. She is the executive director, a co-founder, and a co-chair of Dignity in Schools campaign in Dayton, Ohio, and Racial Justice Now. And I'll tell you more about Zakaya Sankara Jabbar. But I do want to mention to you, you know, I sometimes I wonder if you all are listening to me. Why didn't somebody call in here last week while I was sitting here? Poor me. I get no help. I, a sister can't even get some help. Um, while I'm telling you to turn the clocks back last Saturday, and nobody brought it to my attention, oh, Janice, uh, baby, you got it wrong. It's not this Saturday. It's next Saturday. But tonight is the night at 2 o'clock, two hours after we go off the air. You can flip your clock back an hour and get an extra hour's sleep before you have to start your Sunday. And we wish you well on that. Um, want to wish our sister and our common ground voice, Susan K. Smith, who arrived, the author of Crazy Faith and the autobiography, The Life and Work of Dr. Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who arrived in Tel Aviv today uh, to do the work of social justice on behalf of the people of Palestine, and we wish her well. We also want to ask you for your support of the uh, Haiti Support Project 2015 marks the 20th anniversary of the Haiti Support Project, and as a partner of that project, uh, the founder of the project is Dr. Ron Daniels, an Our Common Ground voice, a very good friend, and I spent two years as his national chair of the Campaign for for a New Tomorrow as we went around this country trying to organize black people into a third political party uh, to serve the interests of black people, and you see how that went. So uh, we're asking you, our Common Ground family, this initiative of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century continues to support some 4,000 children every year by providing school supplies and scholarships and they are in the process of planning to build a model school in the village of Milo, which sits at the base of the world-famous Citadel in northern Haiti. The school will provide a 21st century education to reduce a generation of young Haitian leaders. And we want to ask you, (coughs) excuse me, as you can tell, I'm not quite 
up to par tonight. I'm going to be doing a lot of coughing. Um, we want to ask you to support the Institute of the Black World 21st Century Haiti Support Project. And $200 will send a child to school for a full year. $70 will provide a child with the required school uniform to attend school. $8 will provide a child with a sturdy book bag. $7 provides all the basic supplies, pencils, notebooks, paper. So um, you can make your donation by writing to uh, the Director of Communications at the Institute of the Black World, 21st Century, Don, our good brother, Don Rojas. It's Don J. B. Rojas, R-O-J-A-S. Write this down. D-O-N-J. B-R-O-J-A-S at gmail.com or you can go to the Institute of the Black World 21st Century and make your donation and we hope that you will support this very worthwhile project. I am pleased to be uh, a supporter of the project and have been since its inception. Thank you again. If you're just joining us, this is Our Common Ground. We're not doing anything fancy tonight because it got worse this week. Um, We hope that you are comfortable and you have your refreshments and you will listen carefully because tonight as we talk about demanding justice and dignity for our children, with our guest, Zakaya Sankara Jabbar. We want you to, to listen, to join into the conversation. Our number is 347-838-9852. And if you are listening on a listening device and you want to join in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG and come right in on into the chat room and join our chatters. Our guest tonight is a co-founder, co-chair, and the executive director of an organization which is just Racial Justice Now and Dignity in Schools campaign. And Racial Justice Now made the following statement on the brutalization of this young woman at Spring Valley High School in Columbia, South Carolina this week. And I quote, Black students around the nation are overrepresented in referrals to law enforcement, and black girls in particular are pushed out of school at six times the rate of their white female counterparts. And most boys, with the exception of black male students. Nowhere is this more relevant than in Ohio, where black children represent over 50% of all out-of-school suspensions and expulsions. Just last month in Akron, a black female middle school student was suspended for five days for what the teacher called cool aid crack. 
and and earlier this month in Cincinnati, an area judge upheld a suspension for a 12-year-old boy for staring at a white girl. This mirrors what's going on in this country, all over the country. If you will recall, we opened our 2014 broadcast season with Dr. Byron Price as we talked about how this is the opening police in schools, law enforcement being involved in school, the disproportionate expulsion and suspension of black children is simply the feeder for the school-to-prison pipeline. Our guest tonight, Zakia Zankara Jabbar, is a parent, organizer, advocate, and director of Racial Justice Now. It is a community-based organization led by black parents organizing to lift up their voice and agency in the educational outcomes of their children. The organization is dedicated to fighting institutional and systemic racism by focusing on human rights. It seeks to empower directly impacted parents to challenge systemic racism, discriminatory policies, and criminalization of low-income black families by organizing and holding people in power accountable. We're going to talk about who's who is in power and who must be held accountable. Nationally, Zakia is a co-chair of the Dignity in Schools in, in campaign, which is a national coalition of youth, parents, educators, lawyers, and advocates working to ensure children are treated with dignity and fairness in schools. She studied organizational leadership at Wittenberg University and worked as a human resource professional for the state of Ohio Department of Developmental Disabilities for 11 years before co-founding Racial Justice Now. We do need strong protection in places that validate the humanity of our children. We need the U.S. Department of Education Office of Civil Rights to vigorously enforce civil rights laws of this nation, and to date, they are not succeeding. They are failing. So it is with a great deal of uh, pleasure that I introduce to you and bring into the fold, into the sanctuary, at our common ground. Our guest tonight, Zakaya Sankara Jabbar. Sister Sankara Jabbar, thank you so very much for joining us. I am so pleased. I just want to tell you, I'm in love with you. I'm in loveness with you in the work that you've been doing. I've been watching you for years now and putting these organizations together and trying to get us ready to be on the front line on these issues. Yes, ma'am. Greetings. Thank you very much for having me on your show. 
Um, just wanted to uh, give one quick, uh, quick clarification uh, for your listeners. Um, I am definitely the co-founder and director of Racial Justice Now, but not of Dignity in Schools campaign. I am, however, uh, one of the co-chairs of the National Campaign for Dignity in Schools, which is the national organization. So I just wanted to make sure the listeners understood the difference. Um, oh, thank DSC you very much for making that clarification. Yes, now, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, you know, State. I... Mm-hmm. I know that there are a lot of people out there who are very anxious to talk to you about this issue in South Carolina. One of the things that I want to do is give people an opportunity to to, to do that. But I also want our listeners to understand that this is happening all over the country. This is not new. It is not unique. And we are just not hearing about it. So thank you so much for bringing your expertise and your experience and your guidance to us as we are once again having to see one of our children traumatized. And not just just the victim here, but also a classroom, a school, a community of children who have been beaten back further, and their humanity stolen and chiseled away uh, based on this incident. Because I know that uh, I, I, I have seen a lot of stuff. I was rocked to my core when I saw this man who presses 600 pounds on a whatever you press on take not try to remove her from the desk, but just turn the desk over. And all I could think was how she is so lucky to be alive. She could have had a serious traumatic head or spine or neck injury. So I I do want to make that clarification. And I just really want to apologize to my listeners because I'm going to be coughing all over the place, but I have stuff to say. So we'll just move on. (laughs) Tell us about the kind of work that you are doing and give us your take on to the extent that police in schools are problems. Yes, thank you. Uh, absolutely. Police in school are certainly uh, certainly is an issue nationwide, not just in South Carolina, not just in Ohio. Um, this is something that we are looking at nationally. We are, um, you know, in talks with uh, hopefully having some kind of conversation um, with the White House even and, and, and federal uh, authorities, the, Ohio, uh, the uh, U.S. Department of Education and Department of Justice, um, around getting police out of schools. Um, we really think that that just doesn't mesh well, having police in schools um, for childhood behavior, right, um, should not ever be dealt with, you know, with police. It should be dealt with by educators and principals and those within the traditional school system like it was hopefully when we were all um, coming up. There were no police in schools when I when I was in school. Um, I came to school in the 80s and 90s, and there were no police in, none of, in any of the schools that I attended. 
As far as how we do our work, um, I actually racial justice now was actually founded out of out of my uh, own personal experience as a directly impacted parent. Um, my son was three years old when school push out started for him. Um, he was identified very early on as you know a problem child, um, and and at every turn, you know, he was I was being called um, to come and pick him up, you know. He just didn't fit in well. And I began to ask questions then because a lot of the things that they would, you know, uh, complain about, you know, they would say, well, you know, he's having trouble transitioning or, you know, he has temper tantrums. And so at this time, like I said, he was three. And so I remember one of the questions that I asked, and it seemed like it really threw everyone off. I was like, well, what's normal behavior? Because they were communicating to me in a way that something was was, was abnormal about my child. Um, he needed to be seen, and he needed to have different services. And so I just remember thinking just in my gut that something wasn't right, um, and that's when I became politicized about this issue. I found out that this was not unique to me um, as a parent. It was certainly not unique to my son. Um, and, again, this was several years ago. He's now eight years old in third grade. And I remember when the report came out from the U.S. Department of Education that finally acknowledged the preschool-to-prison pipeline that showed that African-American children and African-American boys are six times in preschool to be kicked out of preschool. So this is age three to five. And I remember that took me back to a place where, again, at the time I wasn't politicized and I didn't understand it, but as I became aware that this was really a national trend, a national issue, I said, wow, I live that, you know. Um, and so I joined up with um, an activist professor who certainly did not stay in the ivory tower, uh, Professor Vernelia Randall, who's been a guest on your show um, before. And we found a racial justice now in her living room. And I remember her advice to me was that, you know, you can file your complaints with um, the Ohio Civil Rights Commission and the Office of Civil Rights in D.C. That's going to be a long process, and you're not you know, going to get the immediate results that you're looking for. And I just remember feeling as a parent just so disempowered. You know, how do I protect my child? How do I, what school do I put him in? Where will he fit in? And I remember I reached out to other African-American parents and I asked them, you know, are you having some of these same problems? And we began to confide in each other and organize, and that was the birth of this movement. And we continue to organize. Uh, particularly African-American parents. Most of our constituency is low-income African-American parents, and um, just basically educating them on this issue, educating them on their rights as parents, and encouraging them to speak up and to not feel in a, in a uh, position where they don't have any power to seat at the table talking to educators and principals when it comes to their children. Well, let me um, ask you to share some of the difficulties in beginning to organize around these issues. And I can attest, I've been watching Amir for over four years, and he's a beautiful um, Nat Love. <laughs> he's a he's a beautiful child, and 
and you're going to, I mean, I, I think about him often because he goes to all of these meetings and 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 he understands how important parent participation is, the consequences of being an engaged citizen, and I just love that so much. Um, but how difficult was this in organizing uh, parents and and uh, communities to understand that this is a problem? Yeah, that's that's. That's a great question. I'm really glad that you asked that because, um, thankfully, I, I have a really good support system. I have a husband who's extremely supportive, but this is one of the hardest things that, that I've ever done, and I truly know, like I don't feel, I know that this is a calling um, because, I, you know, I am not compensated in the same way that I was when I was working as a human resource professional for state government, right? People actually thought mm-hmm. I was crazy when I transitioned out of employment of stability, right? When you get a good government job, you know, black folks, we stay, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's a guaranteed pension, you know, that's great health care and all of that. But I just truly felt called in this direction, um, and I'm experiencing that now where, you know, where there are times that this thing is so difficult because we may not have the resources to be able to get to where we need to go sometimes with parents. and But, you know, honestly, with my partnership with the Dignity in Schools campaign, it's really been a miracle, the level of work um, that we've been able to, to, to really galvanize, the changes that we've been able to make locally, um, some of the changes that we're pushing for at the state level, the level of respect that we get you know, as an organizing organization led by low-income black parents. That's, that that right there is huge, right? I mean, because people, um, unfortunately, whether you're black or white, don't usually respect people um, who are low-income, but especially not low-income black folks, because the political theory out there is that low-income black folks don't care about their child's education, right? And that could, that's, that's, that's the first thing from the truth. I mean, the parents that I know, the parents that I organize with, and it's not just in Dayton. You know, we have we have relationships with parents as far away as Columbus and Zanesville, Ohio, which is a rural part of the state in southeast Ohio, Cincinnati area. All of these parents love their children. They want their children to to have a better, you know, economic situation than themselves. They just don't have the resources, the time to be able to give back or to be able to go to different functions or different meetings. We just have a system set up, usually in the education system, that is not geared towards the population of the children and the communities that they're serving. Um, they're, they're, they're not geared in a way to serve that particular population. Um, there's there's a lot of, unfortunately, you know, problems even with the teachers' unions contract, I mean, where, you know, you can't drop kids off at a certain time or they're not allowed in the building. I mean, crazy stuff. Or teachers are not allowed to stay over 15 minutes past time. I mean, all of these restrictions um, in urban communities around, you know, education and around the families and the communities that they serve um, is usually to the detriment of that community. And we see it over and over again when we look at performance index of, of a lot of urban districts. In the urban districts where you see that they are doing well, 
there has been some changes to the restrictions around the time limits, you know, that teachers are allowed to stay. And there also has been some sort of intentional reaching out to the community, creating community learning centers. Cincinnati is an example where the unions were actually supportive of having community learning centers, where there's health services involved, where there's everything really right there at the school as a hub to serve the community. And so um, I think that as as we continue to move forward in educational justice, not just around the school-to-prison pipeline, but also around pushing back against privatization efforts that's happening also nationally, um, we can use these models where we see success and say mm-hmm. this is what we want um, as African-American families, as low-income families of color, this is the model that we want to replicate in our communities. And so that's something that we're looking at as well locally here in Dayton. Well, it, it just seems that, you know, it's it's striking, and we're going to get to talking about this uh, young high schooler who was brutalized this week. But it's striking um, to hear you talk about trying to bend a system to work on a problem where the system is simply not amenable to the solutions, but that there are some solutions, but you have to build the, the, the infrastructure in order to get to those solutions. Um, That's right. You know, t- talking about the learning centers. Now, um, I know you have some thoughts about what happened at Spring Valley High School. Talk to us about how that reflects in what you have discovered in your work over the last four years. And for those of you who are listening, one of the other co-founders of Racial Justice Now is Dr. Vernelia um, oh, wow. Randall. Randall, Randall, who is an Our Common Ground advisor as well as a voice. Um, and you will, you probably will remember her. If you do not, you can go into our archives um, at Blog Talk Radio and listen to a number of interviews that we have done with her and her background information is um, she is a former law professor at the Dayton Law School. Um, and she has been talking about these issues and the legal and constitutional issues that undergird what is happening around uh, police and police and law enforcement engagement in the black community, specifically around schools. So, give us your reflections about what happened in Columbia this week. You know, I much like what you described. I was literally um, just just knocked on my knees for lack of a better way to describe it. I mean, just in my gut. I mean, I just really went through like a day of depression after seeing that because for me, um, it just reiterated the fact that 
Um, we are continuously, as African people in this country, dehumanized. And the fact that that was a child. Um, one of the things that I that really hurt me in that video was it seemed like um, the other children, and I'm saying seemed like, were just decent. Right? There was no ooh and ah. There was no, they like, history. It was no visceral reaction. Even the young girl didn't even scream. And I was just like, oh, my God. I mean, have we just gotten so used to the fact that we will be beaten, we will be killed, right? We will be this, – this is our reality. Um, and that, that to me, I think is what, what, what hurt me so bad and – Mm-hmm. And then I just really I had to get off of social media for like a day because I just really could not deal with the sympathizers of the cops. I could not deal with people who wanted to focus on the fact that this young girl was quote unquote being disrespectful, as if disrespect deserves like that type of reaction. Right? She deserved her arm to be broken. She deserved to be brutalized because she didn't immediately put her phone up or whatever. I just could not deal with that, especially from other black people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, as a matter of fact, um, I had to block an, uh, a couple of people on my Facebook page and to delete comments on our website trying to rationalize and validate what happened in that in that event and i was it took me a day uh to actually watch the video and then i couldn't stop thinking about it and and then there were just so many different stories about who this child was uh i was very upset and very disturbed and this is the kind of thing that happens to children in our community who are in stressful family situations that one day a, a, a lawyer, Todd, whatever his name is, and I, I, uh, was on national television saying that this child was an orphan and that her mother had died in her in January and her grandmother had died in in June and then the next day was on another radio show and said that the child was in foster care because of a disability that she had and her family didn't have the capacity to give her the kind of assistance she needed, and they had gotten social services to remove her from the home so she so that she could receive some ongoing continuous professional care so here's the story, folks. The story is that this child has a disability. And she is in a foster home where there is a professional who is trained to deal with the disability. And that's why she she wasn't put out of her house. None of that happened. 
it was that they were getting her professional care. Rather than putting her in a facility, she was placed with a professional foster home that could assist in helping her um, successfully deal with this disability. And the disability is both neurological as well and that causes emotional issues. Because they were, you know, like they always do, um, Zakaya, they always try to make the black child, the black victim, the problem. Even in death. I mean, we see that over and over again. I mean, when our young, when our children are killed by police or whether they're killed by vigilantes, it's always about what the victim was doing to deserve to be killed. And I think about this in a larger context of of the system, right, itself, the, specifically the system of, of white supremacy. And I think about how how people have been socialized in a way to to think like that, right, to immediately look at the victim and blame the victim as being deserving of of death, thereby perpetuating the system of dehumanization of of African people in this country. And and I think, you know, (laughs) we have a terribly high tolerance. I will just say that. It seems, you know, I I was actually – really like pleasantly and it may sound weird to some of your listeners but I was actually pleasantly surprised at the rebellions that happened in Ferguson and Baltimore um it kind of let me know that everybody isn't desensitized our young people are not um they're not as socially sort of engineered I guess in a way as some of us older people have been, unfortunately, some of us, not all of us, because I do, obviously, there's plenty of us out here fighting and pushing back, but I just cannot tell you how, again, how frustrated it, it is to see other people of color and other black people look at that video and find a way to blame that child. I yeah. never understood how yeah. you look at what happened to Trayvon Martin and find a way to blame that child because he smoked weed in high school, so that's a death sentence. I mean, just I try to like try to like help people really think through some of the stuff that they say. Like, since when is that a death sentence? Like, since when is childhood behavior worth, or is that just for black children? You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. to, to get like through that and and unpack and question at least, use some critical thinking skills, question why you feel that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, it it, it also, we have to recognize that we, too, are traumatized by this. I know I couldn't sleep. This morning at 2 o'clock in the morning, um, I, I couldn't go back to sleep, and I was thinking about this situation, and I kept envisioning what could have happened. But here's a question for you as an advocate and as an activist in this area. Who the hell, I hope you all, everybody's children gone to bed, 
Halloween is over. They can eat some Halloween candy tomorrow. Um, and I will take donations. Uh, who the hell are the teachers, the administrators, the school board, the superintendent, and the citizens who allow police officers to be inside of a school and have the nerve to call them some bullshit call a resource, whatever they resource people, and then somebody from um, from um, uh, the law enforcement people working with the White House on Haitian, he's on national TV today on a on uh, one of the shows, Talking Head shows, talking about how these resource people are useful, even though he wasn't saying that this Ben Fields officer man who should be in jail, because if he had attacked a dog or if he had attacked a white elderly person or a white student in that way, he would be he would have been arrested for criminal assault. That's right. And we have to understand. I love the fact that you called that out. Even on a dog. I mean, I look at some, I look at every time Michael Vick, I look at every time, I look at every time Michael Vick gets to sign a new contract. And he didn't even fight the dogs. It was just at his house. I mean, they are outraged. Mm-hmm. But where's the outrage? I, and I, yeah, I could go on and on, but I just, but 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 again, that's that that you people who ha, who you have to understand the system of white supremacy and white domination, and 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 when you do, you know, as Neely Fuller, I love this quote by Neely Fuller. If you don't understand white supremacy, then everything else you think else you know you. will only confuse serve to confuse and, you. Yes, and that's what we see. And 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 I think that um, I love the fact when people point that out that if he had a, did that to a dog, I mean he would have been charged with animal cruelty. But That's you right. do that to a black girl, and nothing. I mean you lose your job, but you're not prosecuted. Another thing is I'm not sure if you saw this, but this I saw this on social media today where there was a black Oklahoma City officer who was an SRO. He actually punched the white student, and he was charged. Yes. A, a, a okay, swim coach. Yes. Uh huh. And she didn't want to swim in gym class. She refused to swim in gym class because she had had something done to her hair, and she didn't want to ruin her hair because she was going out that evening. And he tried to tussle her into the pool. She fought back, and he was arrested and charged. Yes, but you see, black, it goes back to Roman. it goes back to what we've been talking on, on our common ground about for thirty years, and that is the undervalue of black people as human beings, and that goes for our Thank children you. as well. And we can have as many dinners. 
and give out as many awards and then you know there should be there should be a moratorium on any damn award, any damn dinner, any luncheon, anything until we get to the core of what happened in Colombia this week. Let's talk about accountability. Where was the school board? All I heard was the sheriff's department talking. And I haven't heard one school board member yet. I think that's, Where are that's they? a very important question. I think you're right. Where is the school board? Where is the superintendent? Uh, where are the teachers, right? Where 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 are the caring adults? Uh, where are the, the 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 people who love and care and cherish all children, right? Where are these people? Um, we've heard enough excuses from folks on why the child, you know, deserves that, but where are the people in that particular community, I agree, um, you know, voicing their their concerns, these people empower uh, the school board. You're absolutely right. I don't think that I saw not even a statement, I don't believe, from the school board. Um, not you one know- of them has spoken publicly to condemn this action to say, you know, this is not something that they would condone. This is not something that, you know, I mean, there's, I, you know, it's 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 really mind-boggling that um, the teacher who was standing in that room while that happened that he hasn't been called on the carpet. I'm not I'm not sure that I've read anywhere. Well, where you know, I'm old school. It's mind-boggling that the men of that community haven't found him and whipped his ass. That's old school. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, I say that tongue-in-cheek, and there are people who will say that I'm advocating violence. But you know what? Who advocated the violence toward this this young child? She was 15 years old. Now, I'm going to tell you about my father. If that had happened to my, something happened to me in high school. A, 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 a white man said something to me when I was a senior in high school, the only black kid in the whole damn school of 900 kids. And, and the white man said something to me. Well, I knew what to say to him. And I never told my father. You know why I didn't tell my father? My father would have torn up graduation night because it happened on graduation night. My father would have torn up. He would have stopped the whole thing. Not, uh, and I just wanted to graduate and move on. So I was smart enough not to tell him until years later. Man must have been dead by that, by then. But we have got to get into a place where we own accountability. And we've got to do it by creating the kind of infrastructure we are accountable to the people who do not have the capacity to address these things. You know, and this young woman was in the first, I mean, three weeks ago, um, Three weeks ago, there was another video where two cops 
who looked like they were maybe 200 pounds heavier than this young student in a high school, and I've forgotten where the location was, and some kids had been playing with him. They took his glasses. He was trying to get his pres- prescription glasses from the kids, and but he got caught by the cops in the school, and they did a chokehold. They wrestled him to the ground with a chokehold. Yeah, they punched him in the face first. Yeah, I saw that. That was just two weeks ago. That was in Texas. That was in Texas. Okay. So who is who is going to be accountable? And when is my question. The other fundamental question is, you know, and I hate to call people's name out, but, you know, Elijah Cummins can grandstand for Hillary Clinton, but he didn't clown about that young boy in Texas, and he didn't clown about this young woman in in Columbia, South Carolina. He didn't clown no, right. about Freddie Gray. When he arrived in Baltimore, when Freddie Gray was murdered, he acted like he had never been to Baltimore before in his damn life. I have no excuses for that kind of behavior and misleadership. Where was the Black Caucus? an organized cry and demand for accountability for black children on this issue. Where were they? But they would have had Hillary Clinton in in the Benghazi uh, hearing the other day. And, you know, this this is a classic. this, this, This is important because I think that this is a class issue that we face in our communities. Um, I think that the NAACP nationally, and I'm distinguishing them from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund because they are our national partners and they are uh, LDF, our national partners uh, fighting against the school-to-prison pipeline and have been very vocal, not just vocal, but have filed lawsuits in Mississippi and other places fighting back. So but the NAACP, the Urban League, and all of these what I call black bourgeois organizations, I don't they you never hear them speak up, speak out. Some of the, the black sororities even and and I you know, we may be stepping on people's toes, but I think this is really important that we begin to talk about these things and have good principle struggle around why they do not speak up for our children. Why do they not speak up on the brutalization and and not just that, but just the conditions of education for our children, the conditions that our children face. It's not a positive school climate in the vast majority of schools that our children attend. It is not. Our children feel terrorized walking through metal detectors, being wanded by police. It is it is a militarized, terrorized uh, state in many of the schools. I will say that in Dayton, however, specifically in Dayton public schools, we do not have police officers that are employed by the Dayton Police Department. The SROs that are in Dayton public schools are actually employees of the school district. Um, And so I think that that's, that's a critical difference because many times in many cities, and I believe as was the case in South Carolina, 
that SRO was actually an employee of the sheriff's department. That's why we had to hear from the sheriff and not the school board because the sheriff employed him, right? So, exactly. So I think that, yeah, I mean, so that's that's one of the keys. Not saying that by any means necessary that things are perfect here in Dayton, but I do think that that is one area where we are more progressive. Um, and I travel, as you know, nationally, all kinds of places. I will say that, for at least in Dayton, that is one area where we are more progressive than many other urban school districts around this country. In my you know, school, you're you're absolutely right. We try to warn. See, y'all want to listen to people who you all see on TV. I'm telling you, tonight is not the night. You want to listen to people who you see on TV because they become celebrities. But it was Bob Law. It was the real black talk radio hosts, the pioneers who were warning you about allowing school districts and school boards to put to label our children as criminals so that they could justify your tax dollars paying for contracts to have the local law enforcement people present in schools. We tried to warn you. Talking about our children as though they were thugs. You go to school every day. You try to learn. I mean... um, I haven't told the whole story on the air yet, Zakaya, but my grandson was in charter school that was supposed to be the number one charter school in the entire Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And week one, when he came home and said, told us about the rules and the regulations and the policies of that school and how children had to behave. They were being governed by the same rules and policies that prisoners were being ruled and governed by in prisons. They were done. I was done. And he didn't go to that school much more. They they wanted him for his testing scores to to boost their testing score average, but we were done. He wasn't going back. And that is the kind of decision parents have to make. Who would send their child to a high school where you have a police officer who has the reputation of being Officer Slam? Right. And parents knew about it. But this is the thing, and I'm so glad that you brought it up. What is wrong? I mean, because I'm sure many people are asking, well, what are wrong with black parents for sending their child to school like this? Here's here's the situation. And but I here's have the failure, and I want you to talk about the failure, too. The failure is that we have not organized and put together, put in place the infrastructure for schools that whose mission is the success of our children. No, I think I think largely no, I think largely that is correct. And I think that because again we're we're looking at a demographic and I'm not sure what the demographics of that particular community is, but I think by and large 
Um, I, let me let me talk about Dayton real quick. The students Before who are in Dayton. Before we talk about Dayton, see. let me go to a break because this is the top of the hour. Okay. And okay. when we come back from a very short break, I would like to hear about what you have done in Dayton because people need to know what's possible. You're listening to That's Our right. Common Ground, transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Our number is 347-838-9852. We are not interested in anybody liking us. The purpose of this existence is so that we can learn to like ourselves. this entity, this body, this light, our very presence as African people is the consequence of something that is transcendent. We must understand that we represent not only the residue of this insanity, but most importantly, we represent the very hope of our people. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Our society is only as strong as all its individuals. The United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I Declare a Show is where we deal with the difficult, real, raw. Right now. If it's real raw right now, talk media. Come on, baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare Show. Talk soon. Join my friend and colleague on Blog Talk Radio every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. The I Declare Show with India Declare. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio. I Declare It. Dealing with the difficult, real, raw, right now. 
the I Declare Show, baby. India on the I Declare show on Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. Real raw and right now. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Janice. Professor Randall and I, um, it was very adversarial. The, the people in Dayton and 
the establishment, I will say, the people in power, like the school board and the superintendent, were certainly used to a lot of apathy in this community. They were not used to black people, you know, organizing in a way, coming with facts, right, not just emotional speeches, but coming with actual facts because uh, with Professor Randall, of course, she has the expertise to be able to do data mining. And so we went to uh, the Ohio Department of Education um, and extracted all the data uh, around school discipline and expulsions. And when we looked at it, Dayton was one of the worst offenders, one of the worst offenders in the entire state of Ohio. And Dayton was one of three of the big urban eight school districts that actually suspended and expelled preschoolers. And so we went on a solutions, not suspensions campaign, went and we drafted our own policy, went in front of the Dayton school board and said, this is what we want. We asked for a moratorium on out-of-school suspensions for pre-K through third grade. Uh, the reason why we use third grade uh, we, we really could have went further because, I mean, developmentally it just makes no sense to suspend children as a form of punishment um, for, for misbehavior. A lot of it is very subjective. Um, we found out in Dayton that most of the children, the vast majority of children, our children in particular, were being suspended for something called disruptive behavior. So in other places like California, maybe New York, it's called willful defiance. Um, so that's a very subjective catch-all category. So a young person can roll their eyes at a teacher, you're out of here for three days. That's, those are the kinds of things that happen. Or coming to school and not having on the correct uniform. I mean, just BS, you know what I mean? And some stuff maybe using profanity. I mean, so stuff that we were saying, you know, young people uh, not causing dangers to themselves or other children, you know, or the, you know, educators in the building. We we really there are other things that can be done that are successful in other districts. A lot of it is around the positive school wide positive behaviors, interventions and support systems, um, restorative practices, transformative practices, all of these positive ways of really dealing with and helping young people understand how to change their behavior to be successful in the classroom. A lot of it also just went back to just basically common sense, like social, mm -hmm. using social and emotional learning, like having an actual relationship with the child. Um, the problem is, is that we really have some people, not all educators, but there are really some educators, unfortunately, black and white uh, in low-income communities in particular, that really look at children um, who are coming into the classroom who may be having some trauma or whatever, something going on, they really literally write our children off. They don't even try to form a relationship with our babies and try to love them, you know what I mean, the way um, that they should and deserve. Um, and so we, we recognize that. We called it out. We also asked them that uh, they deal with the racial disparities. In Dayton, we have a black superintendent and a black school board president, and we basically blasted them around the fact that the racial disparities were so high. Black boys are the largest demographic in Dayton public schools, but they're also the largest demographic who um, – have the least support around academic support. Their, their Dayton Public Schools, unfortunately, has been sued because they are dumping our young black boys 
in special education classes uh, with identifiers for emotional disturbances. So these are young people who do not have a cognitive disability or a physical disability. There's nothing wrong with their brain. And and I use a quote from a district official just from last month's school board meeting. He said the black boys are being put there because no one knows what to do with them. And I said that is a crying shame. I said that is actually a crime against humanity. Well, you know, Zakiah, here's the bottom line. Yeah. Um, The bottom line is we've been talking about the issues of black boys and the lack of supportive educational experiences and environments for them. We've been talking about that for 30 years. I know I've been on the air talking about it. Uh, some people I talked about, Dr. Dr. Amos Wilson, Dr. Akbar, Dr. Yes, uh, Amos Wilson is one of my favorite. Kunjufu. Um, um, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I, I, we've been talking about it forever. I mean, it, but schools have become merely not 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 just sites of education; they have become sites of control. Uh, if you look at the statistics from a recent study. Uh, in in South Carolina, specifically, black students make up 36% of the population, but they account for 60% of suspensions. That's disheartening at best, and that even school discipline is applied disproportionately. What took place Mm -hmm. at Spring Valley High goes well beyond disproportion. And then you've got, I mean, Folks, you look at that video and you look at the way in which that community, you know, let's just tell the truth about it. Our response to Freddie Gray, our response to Walter Scott, our response to nine people being assassinated in an AME church in South South Carolina, our response to Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin have been one of outrage but not one of extracting accountability. I mean, accountability, accountability in both policy, I mean, there should have been nothing less acceptable in our community with our elected officials, with whoever, the judges or whoever, the people in the community, the churches, that this man was not in prison, in jail, charged with criminal assault. And you're right, but I think think you're speaking to the point of why organizing uh, in our community specifically is so important. Not just advocacy, right? We're talking, I'm talking about organizing. So organizing people who are directly impacted by the things that we're talking about, criminalization of entire families, 
the criminalization, prison industrial complex, school to prison pipeline, the military industrial complex, all of these different, you know, systemic institutionalized problems are not going to be dealt with in a way um, that we're talking about, that you are, that I hear the frustration in your voice until we organize and politicize our communities. Um, and you brought up Dr. Amos Wilson and Dr. Jawanza Kanjufu. I didn't get a chance to share with you at the beginning of the call when we talked about my story, but it was actually Dr. Jawanza Kanjufu's book, The Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys, that helped politicize me when I was going through the struggle with my son when he was three years old. I read that book, and I began to read and read and read, and I read basically, I think, all of his books and his line. Dr. Amos Wilson it's, it's really funny you bring him up because he has a ton of lectures that are on YouTube, and I listened to his lectures so much when I was pregnant. Asada, my daughter, who was 15 months old, we couldn't get her to go to sleep unless we turned on an Amos Wilson YouTube video. <laughs> he would I mean, love that. He would absolutely love that. He used to be a, a monthly. He was one of the people who he and Dr. Naeem Akbar, and uh, Dr. Jawanza Kanjufu. I used to have monthly people who came on every month. Um, yeah. And um, I have to tell you this story, and I know people who are listening still waiting for me. Um, I had started digitizing all of my old programs with people um, like Dr. Clark, Dr. Benton, Amos Wilson, Hakeem Adabuti, um, and because, you know, those people didn't have anywhere to go um, uh, 30 years ago. When they wrote a book, they had to come to talk radio. So um, I got all the tapes together because, you know, I, during that time there was no DVDs and and internet, there was no email, none of that stuff, no, the cloud and all that. And so most of my stuff is on cassette tape. And I got the tapes together, I organized them, got ready, bought the equipment, got ready to digitize them. Now I can't find the box with the tapes because we moved into a new house at the same time uh, that I was getting ready to do that project. So somewhere around here. I, I just tell you, you can't win for losing. But but here 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 is another question for you in in how parents and other advocates in communities that you have been working with in the av- advocacy community, how do they deal with the issue of I mean, what happened to this young girl last week was just indecent. But you have a official public response where they're questioning how what what this young woman, girl did to be to 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 receive such brutality, and they're asking her to take responsibility. So here we are in a culture enamored with this ideal of responsibility for some and no responsibility for others. 
uh, or an acknowledgement of such great injustices. How are people coming to that? I mean, how do you get from being in a meeting ten times and then um, and then getting it to the point where you're bringing it to public a public discourse? Hello? Yes, I'm here. I was okay. trying to understand the question. What was the last part of the question? I mean, you've been you go to meetings with parents, you go to meetings with administrators and teachers. And you you try to get them to understand the indecency of all of this, the the lack of humanity and dignity that black children experience in schools. How do you get people moved from just talking about it to beginning to be accountable for changing the way in which the systems are established and designed? For us specifically, you know, locally and even statewide, we've just stayed persistent. So one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, many systems are used to us and I will say as black people in this country are used to our emotional responses, right? Um, as you know, I've been doing this for a number of years. And so the school board has realized that we're not going anywhere, okay? Like when we first did our campaign, that's been a couple of years ago now, we have stayed on them, all right? Um, we have we have parents who are on different committees for Dayton Public Schools, the Policy Committee, the Student Code of Conduct Committee. So we're actually we actually have infiltrated, if I can use that word, uh, seats of power within the school district. Um, and that and and for us, it was just about the persistence of just being a thorn in the side of these people in power and saying we're not going anywhere. We're exerting our agency. Our children make up the majority of this of this district. We want the majority of the resources. We want equity. Um, we want we want what what's just in 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 Dayton Public Schools for the children in this in this school district. Um, Africa, like I said, African American children make up nearly seventy five percent of the district, and we're not going to allow you all to make decisions um, that kick our kids out of school. Uh, the next big fight, I think, is the opening of the beginning of the negotiations of the teachers union contract coming up in twenty seventeen. They're really, I mean, the more the more that we have been involved, we've really seen how the system is not really designed to educate our kids in the first place if we really want to get deep about it. This is so much, much, much more bigger than them criminalizing our students not and our children. Not that 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 that's not an issue, but the system is so designed in a way to really just kill the spirits of our children, of our babies. Mm-hmm. And I will say that that a part of what has happened is that not only have we infiltrated different committees and seats of power, but we have also built strategic relationships with certain people on the school board and other people in leadership within the district. And we are in a position where we're moving some things that we want to see happen. Um, Unfortunately, Dayton Public Schools never had an equity policy. That is something that is being considered now. 
Dayton Public Schools will be considering uh, becoming a member of the Coalition of Educating Boys of Color based there in Boston. Executive yes. Director is uh, Ron Walker. I met him at a conference. And so I don't just fly around the country just to be seen. I literally go around the country and I network and I build with other people and I always figure out what's working for us in other communities. What can I bring <laughs> back to the in the state mm-hmm. of Ohio to make things work for our young people. And so that's that's really what it's been about to answer your question. Is this staying yeah. consistent, knowing our membership and really politicizing and educating our parents on how to do that? Yeah. L- let me let me respond uh by saying two things. Uh one of the things that I have been doing in Boston over the last I, I would say sixteen years is talking with developers, affordable housing developers, about the notion of having a partnership between uh, social service, the social service community, uh, the school community, to try to provide environment, to create environments where children who need specialized parenting that their families cannot provide, homeless children, teenagers, to build, to take some of these old school structures and build boarding and educational environments where children actually live there. There is a expertise in the cultural competence in the services provided there in both education and in social service intervention. And uh, two years ago, we were looking at black boys between the ages of 12 and 17 so that you would have those grades and ensuring that, I mean, we're talking about, you know, one of the things that we've got to start doing is framing our definitions. And you and I have talked about this, um, is the, the idea of what black children are you talking about? What black families are you talking about? You're certainly not talking about my family, with the exception of I have two grandsons, who are at risk even though they have the resources for opportunity. You see what I'm saying? And so, But we've got to start talking about children who have no capacity in their lives, no infrastructure in their lives, in order to evade even the natural kinds of failure. Forget about law enforcement. Forget about all the other things that distract young black boys and girls. So we've got to do something different because if you keep doing what you're doing, you will keep getting what you're getting. You know, and That's and, true. and I think I, I think about and I I hate to talk over the years how disappointed. I always come away from black elected officials for two reasons. One is they don't have the heart 
to fight the system. So they acquiesce and try to make tweaks that don't really impact the problems. The other is... And they're being paid. Think about the compensation. They're living a nice, sometime upper-middle-class lifestyle, and they take care of their own families, and the rest of us, they rationalize it away. And I think that's where you get a lot of the blaming the victim. You hear from the black uh, petty bourgeoisie. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like like this, this sheriff, Lot, he should be fired for being incompetent for calling for responsibility from this young girl. I mean, that should be the bottom line. You don't know what the hell you're talking about, and that may be part of the problem, so you got to go. Right. Where are all of the South Carolina, I, I know that they're having a big meeting in Columbia, either today or tomorrow whenever, but where are all the elected officials? Where is Tim Scott, the U.S. Senator from South Carolina? Um, there's a petition to fire, to get Don Lemon fired and this Raven Simone woman, crazy people, ignorant, uh, to get fired. But where are the petitions to impeach some elected officials who actually yes. craft policy? Right. Where's the petition to get this sheriff, this teacher, and the administrators in this school in Columbia, South Carolina, that allowed a child to be criminally attacked, assaulted? I mean, when you think about it, come on, this child could have been killed in that incident. Yeah, and what, her arm what would we all be saying then? And we still don't yeah, know I mean, what kind of yeah, and we still don't know what kind of injuries. Um, <coughs> so uh, those are the questions that we have to go into the public square and begin to ask. I want to know what is the Black Caucus going to do about police in public schools. My daughter attended Palm Beach County Schools, and she attended Brookline, Massachusetts Schools. She never saw a policeman in her school. You know why? Because the schools she went to were predominantly white. You see? Mm-hmm. That's really kind of like some of the bottom line. And we've got to get to the bottom line on accountability and what this all means. We as black people have got to stop being ashamed that we are victims of white supremacy. Right. Because you don't control the system of white supremacy. So you are a victim. Our number is 347-838-9852. And our guest tonight is Akaya Sankara Jabbar. And we're talking about the dignity of our children. What kind of generation? What future do we have if we have children who feel that they can never be children? 
Yeah. We've got a we we've got a call, Zakaya, and I want to take this call. It's the bottom of the hour at the sanctuary of Black Truth. And please, I I love my people dearly, but don't call here tonight trying to. Uh, don't don't even think about it. That's all I'm saying. Cause I'm cutting for bear on this one. Again, nine one four. You're on the air at our common ground. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Well, yes. Hello, BJ, and hello, uh, Zakaya. Uh, basically, I'm a Zakaya. Facebook friend. Zakaya. Sorry about that. I'm a Facebook friend of both of you all, actually. I'm I'm James Jones uh, on Facebook, but on here I'm oh, serious. Oh, James, it's great to hear from you, my brother, and thank you for your support. Very welcome, very welcome. Well, yes, I well, who couldn't see this situation that happened there in um, Spring Valley, South Carolina? But just saying, when I have first heard that it was Spring Valley, I'm here in New York. There is a town up here in New York called Spring Valley. I thought it was there. But then when I heard and you wouldn't have been surprised if it were or if it, it had been, right? Also not, also not. And then again, also, you know, um, seeing, well, matter of fact, I will also say, like a lot of us, it got to a point where and I couldn't look at that anymore. I really could not. And um, also, I will also say that that sheriff, when he was on there explaining about what he was going to do and how he had seen the video, and he talked something about how the injuries that the child sustained, he really minimized that. I guess I don't know what information he had because later on it turned out that she, her arm was in a sling and other injuries she had sustained. But he had initially said that, oh, she sustained some rug burns. I mean, I thought I it was just it was just outrageous that he would say something like that but then again uh, let me ask I, you something james if she had been a if she had been a white student would he still have his job um um i would say that we this this conversation wouldn't even be had if it had been a white student it never would have happened because they don't do that to each other because number one as i've said elsewhere when it comes to us they really don't see the humanity in us that they see in themselves. They, I mean, like in a real sense, uh, with those people, I'm talking more so about racist white people, the racist individuals. When they see us, they don't see themselves in us. They see us as something entirely other and different and negative. But yet when they see others of them, they see people, all right, they see another white person, they see somebody who looked like their, 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 their father, their mother, their brother, their sister, their cousin, their friend, but when, but like when they see us, they don't see any of that. Any yeah, of that. our children are not children. Our children are just smaller versions of the N word. Well, we could yeah, see it like yeah, we could see it yeah. like that too, but but more so primarily, they don't see us as the same as they see themselves. And also, you had mentioned earlier uh, the psychologist Naeem Akbar. I have listened to him, and um, I will say that I agree 
with what he says about racism actually being a mental illness. And also how he said that when it comes to us in a real sense, I mean, it's kind of tricky when he say that they don't see us because they see us perfectly well. But the thing is, when they see us, they don't consider us in the same way that they consider themselves. And thus, this is why that, that, that cop was able to throw that black child around the way he did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why, remember, years ago, I started saying, Black Lives Matter where? Somebody well, tell me where. Okay, I can, well, I can, I can somewhat answer that. Uh, there may be some disagreement, but what I have also come to say is that, okay, to your question, I would say the only place Black Lives Matter is with other black people, and that's only if Black Lives Matter to those particular black people. I mean, like, I can and, tell to, 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 like, yourself and, and also Zakai, did I say her name correct that time? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. But, but what I'm saying, though, is, <laughs> is that to you all and myself, definitely black lives matter. Absolutely. But, however, yeah. to, to, to someone else who could be black, like us, and those, those, those black people who want to blame that little girl for that situation, to them, black lives don't matter. And then, secondly, yeah. as you were saying earlier, their lives to themselves do not matter unless they see that some white eye gives validation to, to, to their existence. If that don't happen then to them, their, their lives don't matter, and it's okay to them. Yeah. But, you yep. want, but, you want, but you want to know something also? Uh, listening, listening to, um, to um, Zakiah and um, hearing what she was saying about um, her situation, which is most of our situation with the school system, I was thinking that, damn, she had to do a, a lot of, un, to me, unnecessary struggling just to yeah. have her child, just to have her children in a proper educational environment. And, yeah. and, then, yeah. and then again, as, as she came to know, um, the educational system, it's been said so for so long, the education, this system, period, is rigged against us. Consider the, the, uh, the time during our enslavement in this country. I mean, they had laws, act, well, I say laws, actually laws, but yes, lawyers, people who, mm-hmm. men, men who supposedly thought and were considered to be thinkers, made up laws against us. Yes, yes. And hey, James, I got a board, my board is lighting up like oh. Christmas. Um, okay. Halloween lights. But I really appreciate your call, and we're going to get a response from Zakaya for you uh, before we go to our next caller. Zakaya? Yeah, just really quickly, the correct pronunciation of my first name is Zakia. <laughs> but oh, I understand yeah. Yes. And, James, thank you so much. Yeah, we are Facebook friends, and I keep up with you on Facebook and everything. So thanks so much for listening in and, and uh, calling in. And I appreciate you for uh, recognizing the struggle of um, of us as black parents and really trying to push back. But we certainly, uh, you know, definitely need the support, continued support of all of our um, comrades and allies around the country. Yeah. And, James, we appreciate your support of our common ground and for educating us all through each day on Facebook. And thank you very much. And um and and we look we'll look for you every Saturday night at 10 p.m. Certainly. as the struggle continues. Thank you very much. We're going to go to 443 you're on the air. 
I respect you. Thank you for your call with Zakia Sankara Jabbar. Good evening, B- uh, good evening, BJ. This is Patricia uh, Moody Jefferson. Good evening, Zakia. Hey, sister. Um, hey, I'm friends with both of you on Facebook. Um, <clears throat> one of the questions that I um, that I have, and I, I guess it's piggybacking up on the, the the what you said earlier, BJ. You know, I understand about racism, white supremacy, and that, you know, there are some black people on social media that wanted to blame the little girl and then they wanted to blame the police officer. But I think I read on your Facebook um, Facebook post that you that you wrote, um, BJ, that the the teacher was black. Yeah. That called the, 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 the that called for the um the school officer to come to the classroom. Yes. So one of my questions is, I want to know, when are we going to hold our elected black public officials accountable? For example, I live here in Baltimore City. Our mayor is black. Majority city council is black. And I, I just don't understand why we don't ask more of them. And that's just not here. You got a mayor in Philadelphia, but you got mayors all across this country that are black. Well, you still you have black the- people who are dying in the streets as the as 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 a result of you know police brutality. Well, you know it. Um, and Zakaya can and can come in on this, but one of the things that I have been saying. Uh, for all of my adult life is that black people hide behind the fact that we will not criticize them in public. But when their behavior is so egregious, when there is a lack of accountability, and, and you know, I've spent a part of my professional life as a political consultant, and we know where you get your money from. But where you get your staying power from is from us. If we no longer support you and white folks who give you money think we're not going to vote for you, they will leave you. And until we start calling these people out by name, by name, when Black Lives Matter people um, disrupted Hillary Clinton the other day in Atlanta, John Lewis was about to lose his mind. <laughs> but he hasn't lost his mind over what happened in Columbia, South Carolina, or what happened in Baltimore, or what happened all over this country. Lose your mind over something that matters. Exactly, exactly. But you know what? So that's my answer to it. I don't know what Zakaya uh, <laughs> might want to get in uh, get in on that conversation on 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 a response to that. No, I agree, and that's that's actually what I described. I mean, it's really a form of neo-colonialism where you have white supremacy played out in blackface. Period. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, and and I talked about how even. The way we organized here in Dayton, I mean, we have a black superintendent and a black school board president. Um, 
in our, our city council, we have a majority, uh, near majority of, of black people on the city council, yet West Dayton is predominantly African American, and we have the least resources, right? I mean, we're still, you know, at the bottom literally of the barrel. I mean, you're right. It plays out the same way. Um, that's right. That's why. And I think that I agree, these people, and that's what we do. We do call them out, and that's what makes us unpopular with certain pockets of the community, right? And And no one has brought this up, but where are the churches? I don't know about your community, but I know in Dayton there's a thousand churches and no one is holding these people in power accountable. It used to be, um, at least during the, the, the most recent civil rights movement with King and others, you know, where that was a place of organizing, right? There was a place that people went to to organize uh, the community uh, to change the situation and to change everything. Now it's almost like the churches are in cahoots with a lot of the elected officials and city officials and the government. And right. they're really, at least in Dayton, they're not pleased. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, and we have churches in the community across the street from each other on the same corner. To me, I think that's indicative of the larger and I don't want to pathologize us as a community like in a swath, but I do think it's indicative of the, I will say, of the healing that needs to take place within us. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of healing that needs to take yeah. place. But that's not excusing the fact that these people are apathetic and they don't speak up when they have the political voice at some of these tables where they could speak up for the community, and they don't. Exactly, exactly. Hey, Patricia Moody Jefferson from Baltimore City, thank you so much for your call, and thank you for your support of Our Common Ground. We really appreciate it. We really do. And keep thinking about these things. Start calling people's name. You know, y'all got some real problems um, in Maryland that need to be resolved, um, and some some people ought to be calling the town meeting and being in charge of the town meeting in Baltimore and inviting the elected officials to listen. Mm-hmm. Shut up and listen. You know, if they can't represent, then they need to um, move the hell out of the way. And some of them have lost their ability to critically think of this new uh, of this this newest wave in America. Thank you for your call. I got to move to the next caller 646. Okay. You're on the air. I respect you. I respect you BJ and your guests also. This is Jay. Hey listen, when you talk about John Lewis, you got to talk about old time negro. You know the bottom line is the man got to protect the interests of his white mother, Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and his white daddy, Bill Clinton, and the rest of them white folks who've been controlling that Negro for years. So, I mean, I don't understand why y'all even expect anything from him. You know, the sad thing is that I don't think we as a community really understand what this Black Lives Movement really is. You know, it's just a a, a, a souped-up version of what was going on in the 60s. 
you know, they're just using new new slogans. But it's basically the same script. And that's why, honestly, it will be put down when the time comes. Because they don't have brothers and sisters like yourself, BJ, and some of the other brothers and sisters out here who understand what COINTEL and all of these other programs were about advising them. You know, basically, they got white folks really behind the scenes advising them. And, um, you know, that's that's going to be the downfall of that whole movement because the movement honestly isn't truly about liberating us as a people. And you could see the direction in the way that it's going with now they're talking about having some sort of town hall meeting with the candidates, some sort of debate with the candidates, all this nonsense to do what? To lead you into voting for the Democratic Party. That, that, that's all. I mean, because the bottom line is, if, if, if you look at these wing nuts in the Republican Party, ain't no sane American that's of color is going to vote for them. Now, you got the Negroes who support this this man, Ben Carson. But, I mean, honestly, do you or your guests think that anybody on the world stage would respect him or Donald Trump if they were to get the nomination? I mean, come on. At some point in time, I think you would have to have uh, uh, um, some sort of removal of one or, one or two of them, because there's no way in hell that on the world stage in America, the dumbest of white folks have this much influence, which they do in a sense, because that's why you got the Tea Party, but would have that much influence to get even one of them clowns elected into office. But I will say this to you. Hillary Clinton is far worse than both of them two. Now, we well, may not see it, but she's far worse when it's all said and done. Well, you know, the thing is, Hillary Clinton is one of the most competent political animals on the planet. And one of the biggest liars also. Well, she's a master that comes, liar. That comes with it. She knows what to say, when to say it, uh, regardless whether it's the truth Right, but we have to get our people to recognize that. We have to get our people and people like-minded, really, period, to to be able to recognize that. And that's what I think that's so important about some of the movements before ours. And and I was sharing earlier um, with um, Ms. Graham that, you know, I I got a chance to see the, the Black Panther documentary, The Vanguard, of the movement, and it really showed what you mentioned, sir, about COINTELPRO, but it showed how smart Huey was, like how he read the law and found out that you could legally carry a firearm and in, in, in the state of California. And look how swiftly white folks changed the laws because we educated ourselves and politicized ourselves and organized in the, in the community to push back against what was happening. And I think when you see how repressive the government came down on that, I think as a result of COINTELPRO, which I believe is still very much alive today, 
Um, yes. I think that's why we have not been able to see another mass movement like that of the Panthers and as successful as they were, because what the Panthers was talking about was really, they were politicized, right? They were doing everything that we needed. They were educating. They had schools. They were feeding our people. They had programs around the different illnesses that specifically affected black people, like sickle cell research. I mean, I don't know any black organization doing anything like that today. I mean, even, you know, much respect to the Black Lives Matter movement, but they don't, to me, I would say there's not a level of political uh, sophistication um, with that particular movement as they're, because they're not talking about capitalism. They're not talking about overthrowing the system as it is, which, which yes. you know, they're not talking about changing institutional systems that oppresses every damn body. But well, well, let, me just, let, me just, let me just say this, and Jay, um, it's certainly something that we need to be talking about on Our Common Ground more. I cut my political and community organizing teeth inside the Black Panther Party. And here's the bottom line of true revolutionary work. You understand, one, who you are working for, and two, you have to be real clear about meeting their needs. And I don't see one political movement in this country right now other than slight grassroots groups that start in people's homes like Racial Justice Now and Dignity in Schools and a few other organizations. But it starts with understanding that a entire body of scholarship of how to break black people came out of the COINTEL program, and who was the author? J. Edgar Hoover, who learned how to disenfranchise, to demonize, marginalize, isolate, black people from themselves. Well, well, BJ, let, let, let me just say, say this one thing. In all of these situations that we face as a people, there are people like yourself out there who have the knowledge and the wisdom to educate these young people. And unfortunately, some of the people that are behind and sponsoring these individuals are not in our best interest. So I'm just hoping that at some point in time they will wake up and um, see the light. But I'll leave you with this. As far as the young girl in the situation that happened in South Carolina, first and foremost, we can never blame that child for anything in regards to the brutalization that she faced. Because if you really study and look at the at the video, that child in no way deserved that type of violent treatment. Trained professionals are supposed to be able to communicate with a child 
so that you don't have to resort to that type of physical violence. And the only well, reason the, the, that that man is being has been terminated is because there was a video. If there was no video, this thing would not even be in the public, and he would still have his job because the sickness is that you have young black boys and girls who would leave school to protest for that animal to be back into their presence. So that but tells here, you, like Marco said, we sick. Here's another bottom line is <laughs> there should be no policing and law enforcement in schools. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You, you, you know why you're wrong, BJ? Because it's not for any other reason other than to criminalize us and to make white kids feel safe when they're in their schools. You got to remember, they are also in their schools, but they just don't treat them kids in the same fashion that they treat ours. So you can't I'll have them no, in no, one the police, school and not in the other. No, no. By and large, sir, the police are not in white suburban districts. They're just not, at least not in the state of Ohio. I think they have to well, be. I know and they're they are not in the state of New York. I know they are. I know they are in the state, the state no. of New York. In certain, and I even tell you how deep it is. I'll tell you how deep it is. We don't have. They we don't have, have time to see how deep it is. Well, I'll just leave it, leave it with this, BJ. They have professional armed security guards private armed security guards instead of police in these muckety-mucks schools. Have a good day, sister. Hotel. Hey, Jay. Good to hear from you, Hotel. Um, but, but Zakaya, I just have to say, there should, police officers, there should be no place for police officers in any school. No, we agree. No, we agree. There's, because there's no if you, reason if, for if you're dealing with the mission of education, then you have definitely got to deal with how do you change that environment, how do you deal with the issues that they think they're dealing with with law enforcement. It's been such a pleasure, uh, Zakai, and you've got to come back and we got to get we got to get um, racial justice now and dignity in schools. If nothing more than a six six month project at Toothworks Network, we've got to do this. I think that's an amazing idea, definitely. And I I, I really want to thank you so very much for the work that you do, for the sacrifices that I know that you make. You are really a soldier of love and a revolutionary sister, making it. An act, a verb, changing what we need to change. And thank you so very much, and I wish you the best. Big hugs for your your hubby, who I know uh, from my own experience. Families take a beating from activists. So thank you so very much, and um, we'll have to do this discussion some more. Yes, let's have a part two. Okay, we will. Don't I'll hold yep. you to it. Good. Good.
Thank you all for being with us there. Thank you all for for being with us tonight. Next week, we're going to be talking about black reproductive health and rights. We hope you'll join us, and thank you so very much. We rush into battle. We're soldiers. We get hurt in a fight. We suck it up, and we hold it down, and we don't question. I like it or not. So I'm not asking you for the truth. I know the truth. So what I'm asking you is, what is your end game? You've been listening to Our Common Ground. Thank you for tuning in tonight. I'm Janice Graham. If it's Saturday at 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you. Next Saturday, join us. needs to be dealt with right now. At this very moment, you are standing in the eye of the hurricane, and you're going to sit here and pretend. You think that White House is going to protect you? You're not the fixer here. You're the problem. You're a client. You're my client. Tuned into our common ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You've got to-